0: Today's episode is brought to you in part by a new podcast, The Chronicles of Now, a podcast that commissions authors like Roxane Gay, Colin McCann, Carmen Maria Machado, and Curtis Sittenfeld to write short fiction inspired by the headlines. Each episode features a new work of fiction inspired by the biggest stories of our time, like what does COVID-19 do to our relationships? How do we make sense of climate change? And extinction. And perhaps most mysteriously, what is going on with Trump's tweets? Because in such uncertain times, sometimes art, fiction, is the only way to make sense of it all. The Chronicles of Now is imaginative storytelling at its most compelling. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Today's episode is also brought to you by Scorpion Fish by Natalie Bacopoulos, which Claire V. Watkins calls a riveting, elegant novel keenly observed in the manner of Elena Ferrante and Rachel Cusk. Set in contemporary Athens, the novel follows academic Mira as she returns to her childhood home. It's a story of how and where we find our true selves in the pull of the sea, the sway of late-night bar music, the risk and promise of art. And in the sparkling electric summertime charge of endless possibility. Says Jasmine Ward, Scorpion Fish dazzles, fierce and tender in turn. The clarity of its insights about love and loss and grief will break you and remake you. Savor it and it will leave you changed. Scorpion Fish is out now from Tin House. I'm excited to present today's craft talk to you partially because I first learned about Lacey M. Johnson through attending a craft talk of hers in 2014. That talk was called Mastery, Mystery, Mania Against Chronology and Memoir. I was so impressed by this talk that I reached out to her about being on the show. She wasn't coming through Portland, but several years later, she reached out to me to tell me she was, and we had a remarkable conversation about her memoir, The Other Side, and about writing against chronology, one that so many people responded to that it was a no-brainer to have her on last year for her essay collection, The Reckonings. I was also in the audience when Lacey gave today's craft talk at the 2018 Tin House Summer Writers' Workshop. This talk, titled On Likeability, eventually became an essay, an essay which was selected by Rebecca Solnit for Best American Essays 2019. After hearing today's talk, you can find the two long-form conversations with Lacey in the podcast archives at tinhouse.com slash podcasts. Enjoy today's Tin House live episode with Lacey M. Johnson on likability.
1: This is pretty fresh and new um, and still in progress, so I welcome feedback and I welcome the conversation that we're going to have at the end, hopefully. Um, And I know that in um, the description of the talk, it talks about how women writers are seen as unlikable, but I think I'm going to just trust that I'm going to expand that a little bit through this talk. So this is on likability. My daughter comes home from school at least once a week and announces to me that no one likes her. She has done something that is too weird or bold or has said a thing with which others disagree. She has had to sit alone during lunch or play alone during recess. She even sat on the buddy bench, she tells me, and no one came. Right? At the moment she says or does the weird, bold thing, she doesn't care what anyone thinks or whether they agree or disagree. It's only afterward, after she has felt herself shunned, ostracized, and completely alone with her decision that she begins to question it. She is 11 and a half. The half is important. When I was 11 and a half, I liked to play the Commodore 64 and read choose-your-own-adventure novels. And I liked making tapes of my favorite songs that I recorded off the little radio my parents let me have in my room. I'm old. I liked New Kids on the Block. I liked them so much I called it love. And I liked sitting next to my friend, Lana McVeigh, on the long bus ride home when we would talk for hours about who we liked better, Joey or Donnie. I liked Joey. She liked Donnie. She is wrong. I w- no, it's okay. I've grown. I've grown as a person. I was very young. He has blue eyes. I mean, that's cute. Anyway, I liked to climb the. <laughs> she's making such a face, she's like, no, wrong. No. We can talk later. I liked to climb the row of mulberry trees that grew beside the long driveway to our farm. I liked to wander in the woods and eat blackberries straight off the vine. I liked being alone sometimes, but not always. And I liked how my arm hair glowed gold in the sun. When I was 14, two and a half years older than my daughter is now, I liked a boy who was a few years older than me. He played on the basketball team, was over six feet tall, had chest hair, and on his upper lip grew what was, in retrospect, a very sad excuse for a mustache. (laughs) I liked that he wore Dracar Noir that he stood with his hands in his pockets, that he drove a fast car. I wanted him to like me back. So I agreed to sneak out of my friend Lisa's house, where I was supposed to be spending the night. And I agreed to meet him down the road. And when he picked me up in his fast car and drove to a liquor store that mostly disregarded the state's liquor laws, I agreed to drink from the bottle he handed me. I liked how it tasted, how giddy and free being drunk made me feel. I agreed to sneak him back into my friend's house to the basement. I did not like what he did to me. I didn't like how he kept kissing me after I told him to stop or how he overpowered me, held me down, put a pillow over my face so no one in the house would hear me crying for help. I agreed to doing things I didn't really want to do that night because I had been taught somewhere along the way that it was a blessing to be liked by a man that I should be flattered by the attention, from the grown man who called to me on the street while I was walking alone, from the one who kept calling even after I asked him to stop, from the drum major who wanted me to suck his dick in the back of the car. I learned soon enough that being liked meant favor, meant preferential treatment, meant at least there wouldn't be violence. I was supposed to be flattered that my Spanish professor liked me enough to invite me to his apartment while I was still his student, to his bed, that he invited me to live with him. He was the one who proved to me that it didn't matter how likable I was. There was always the threat of violence or punishment for saying or doing something he didn't like. We could be at the market choosing fish and fresh tomatoes for dinner, and his hand would be resting on the small of my back and the next moment it would be raised to strike me. I tried diminishing myself in such a way that I wouldn't provoke, wouldn't anger him. I tried bending myself according to his pleasure so that he would like everything I did and said and thought. It didn't matter because no matter what I did, it was never enough. I kept at it anyway until there was almost nothing left in me of the person I had been. And that person I became, who was barely a person of her own, was the person he liked the best. I wrote a memoir about that, about how that happened, about how a man convinced me to give away all of my power and authority and to reject everything in the world that brings me joy without even realizing I was doing it. It wasn't easy to write that book, and I knew that if he ever read it, he wouldn't like what I had said. The first time I read From the Other Side, which is here at Tin House in the amphitheater, I am not exaggerating when I say I thought he might show up to shoot me with a gun. But what actually happened is that my story found an audience instead. After its release, the criticism most often waged against my memoir uh, was that my narrator, which, spoilers, is me, (laughs) isn't likable. Yeah, right? That I write things that make my readers uncomfortable and that I make choices with which my readers disagree. As if my most important job in finding language for a story that had none were to please. As if by labeling, labeling me unlikable, they don't have to listen to the story I needed to tell. Raped women are unlikable, apparently. So are strong women, women who survive, Ambitious women are unlikable. Women who are good at their jobs. Women who tell the truth. Women who don't take shit are unlikable. Women who burn bridges. Women who know what they are worth. Why shouldn't women know their worth? Just because we're not supposed to? Just because people don't like it when we do? I know, for example, I am good at lots of things. I am not good at singing, and you'll hear that later, at karaoke, but I write like a bad motherfucker. I am, I am very funny in person. You heard my jokes. Also, I just ran a marathon. Right? It wasn't pretty, and I wasn't fast, but I persisted. And it is small confidences like these from which I draw courage to tell the truth without regard for whether anyone likes it. As a woman, I have been raised to be nurturing, to care for others' feelings and well-being, often at the expense of my own. I've been taught that to be liked is to be good. But I have noticed, maybe you have also noticed, that certain men are allowed to be any way they want. They get to be nuanced and complex. They get to be adventurous or reclusive. They can say anything, do anything, disregard rules and social norms, break laws, commit treason, rob us blind, and nothing is held against them. A white man in particular can be an asshole, a rapist, a pedophile, a kidnapper of children, can commit genocide, or actually do nothing notable or interesting at all. (laughs) And we are expected to hang on his every word as if it is a fucking gift to the world. Likeability doesn't even enter the conversation. His writing doesn't even have to be very good. I'm going to take a drink real quick. (laughs) It's getting hot in here. I am still talking about writing, believe it or not, though there is an uncanny resemblance to current events in the wider world. Let us consider, for example, I don't know, our most recent presidential election. On the one hand, we had such a man as this, an unapologetically racist, sexist, homophobic, serial sexual assailant, a grifter, a con man, And on the other hand, we had a woman many people didn't like. That election cycle reminded us of all the words for an unlikable woman. She was a bitch, a cunt, a hag, a harpy, a twat, a criminal. She was unbearable, unelectable, unlikable. Unlikable to whom? I'm saying women are told we are unlikable, but let's be honest, this pressure isn't exclusive to women especially not just to white women. The world tells black women they are unlikable when they are angry, even though they probably have the most reason to be angry. I find it unlikable that more of us aren't angry alongside them. The world tells black men they are unlikable when they are too confident, too intelligent, when they behave like kings when they are not men, but children who reach into their pockets or stand together on corners. People who have immigrated to this country are told they are unlikable when they take American jobs. They're just as unlikable when they do not work. They are unlikable when they cross the border in the desert under the cover of night and when they come through a checkpoint in the middle of the day. We put their stories in cages this is not a metaphor. When the stories from any group of people are so consistently policed because of the way they look or the configuration of their bodies or the choices they have made about how to live their lives, what kind of family to build, how to love, how to worship God or not, or the language they speak or the country where they were born or because someone does not like the things they have to say, We should understand that likability is not a question of craft, but of sexism, racism, homophobia. It's a question of bigotry. The pressure to remain likable exerts power over us and the stories we feel it is safe enough to tell. We tell ourselves stories in order to live, Joan Didion famously writes in the White Album. By the way, I don't like Joan Didion, but she's a really good writer, and I I honor her enough to tell the difference. (laughs) Stories are how we know ourselves, how we understand our relation to others. Stories are the lenses that allow us to look at the chaos of the world and see with clarity and wisdom. We remember our past through the stories we tell about our mistakes and successes, and through these stories, we teach our children lessons for the future. We resolve conflicts through stories, especially those of us inclined toward a tidy narrative arc. Stories keep us sane. They give us meaning. As a writer of nonfiction, I understand that if some of us tell stories in order to live, others must tell our stories in order to survive. In my own life, the stories I have told have created paths for me that did not previously exist. They have helped me to escape from prisons of my own making or another's. They have become the form through which I have made the case for my own humanity or another's. What I have found to be the most powerful about these kinds of stories is that they are almost impossible to deny. This is not to say that people haven't tried to negate or degrade or defame the stories I have told. That's my point. But my point is also that when I tell a story that is mine and true, they cannot simply say no, because the truth is not a request. It is not a question. And it requires neither permission nor forgiveness. I want to pause for a moment to talk about forgiveness. Yesterday, Kiese, in what was a very generous and brilliant craft talk, um, he told us that he lied in his writing because he wanted to be forgiven for a story that he hadn't even begun telling. I was up there on the balcony with my hand raised the whole time (laughs) because I wanted to say that forgiveness is not the point. If you come to the page to ask for forgiveness, you have come to the wrong place. Forgiveness asks everything from the forgiver. It asks her to give her pain away, to act as if the harm never happened. It's the wrong question to ask. I'm not interested in letting go of my pain, but in transforming it into strength and letting that transformation transform me. I have made so many mistakes. And I experience those mistakes I have made as guilt and as a burning shame. But I can tell a story that transforms that too. Not by taking the other person's pain away, because it isn't mine to take, but rather through understanding the harm that I have done and the pain that I have caused in another. This is what I mean by a reckoning. It means I take responsibility for the pain that I have caused. It means I feel that pain in myself. And I also feel it in you. This kind of reckoning is, to me, the first step toward reconciliation. The pressure to be likable keeps us from doing this hard work. It keeps us from telling the truth, not just on the page, but also in the lived experience of our daily lives. Each day, we go to great lengths to be likable. Some of us spend hours altering our bodies so that we can be better liked. We starve ourselves to be thinner. We bind. We constrict. We take up less space. We make ourselves paler or darker. We cover up or we show more skin. We tell lies to survive and to fit in. We feel pressure to disfigure ourselves on the page in these same ways. We constrict our stories because we are told they do not deserve to occupy space in the world. We tidy up our histories to make them more presentable to others. We carve up lifetimes of mistakes and wrong choices until it is only a shell of the truth, which isn't really any kind of truth at all. Sometimes I am afraid of what I write. I want to be liked, but the thing is I don't need to. We all want to be accepted. It's part of what makes us human. It gives us society and culture. We communicate to others through turning towards them or turning away. It's the original binary code. You should be a little afraid of the story you are telling, too. If you're not afraid that maybe somebody won't like it, you're still not telling the truth. Listen, there will always be some people who don't like what you have to say. I recently spoke on a panel at a conference in Iceland with Dr. Yuknovich and Professor Phoebos, Actually, she's way up there. What's up, girl? (laughs) Um, And I told the attendees, which was a room full of mostly women, kind of like this, and um, maybe two cis hetero dudes. And I told them that I don't actually care whether men like my writing. There are specific men whose opinion matters to me. My husband, several friends, the men running this conference, the men in this room who are writers who I really admire. But as a demographic, no. I don't actually care at all whether men like my work. There was some movement and a stir, kind of like this. After the talk, both of the two men who were in that room (laughs) approached me. One was the conference organizer, because they wanted to tell me they didn't like what I said. (laughs) Imagine for a moment the luxurious freedom of being so appallingly unselfaware. Just... Maybe now those men call me that bitch, which is fine. I'll put it on a tote bag. Maybe they call me a cunt, a hack, a whore. I don't have to answer. That's not my name. I know my name. The other day, a white man gave my new book a bad review. He didn't like it. But I figure if I wrote a book some white man didn't like, maybe I'm doing something right. I see it all the time with my students. I teach undergraduates in my real job, in my regular job. This is a real job, but that's my, where I have to go every day. <clears throat> this is like vacation with bourbon. <clears throat> I teach undergraduates, and every semester, someone who's usually a woman, by the way, asks me privately how to handle what people will think about what she has written. Her parents don't know, or her friends don't know, or someone might not like what she has to say. She always thinks first of changing it, of giving up before she's even ever really begun. I have a friend who is revising her first book, which is a memoir. She called me the other day, which is a lot because I hate to talk on the phone. It's like, I will take a bullet for you, I will give you a kidney, I will talk to you on the phone. That's the sort of like, so she called me. Um, The chapter she was working, she was asking for help with a chapter that was giving her particular trouble. The chapter tries to tell the story of a day when she watched several of her former friends harassing a group of kids outside a shelter for LGBT youth. But in the scene, as she had written it, it wasn't at all clear that that was what was happening or what her role was in what was going on. My friend said she was thinking about cutting the scene entirely because she couldn't figure out how to explain what had happened without making her friends and her look like they were being bigoted assholes. But... Weren't you being bigoted assholes? I asked. She hesitated. Well, yes. Then what's the problem? I wanted to know. She said she was worried people wouldn't like her, if that's what she said. In a writer's group online, a woman posted about having finished a draft of a memoir about being abused by her brother, and how she had sent this draft of a memoir to her father for his review which is as fucked up as it sounds, since her father had for all of her life shielded her brother from the justice that she deserved. She wrote to the group about her concern about her father's reaction. I'm afraid he won't like it, she said, as if his feelings should be her primary concern. Think of all the emotional labor this requires. Planning each of your actions and weighing them against the emotional consequences they might have on every person, and bending yourself in anticipation of what others might feel. Always scaling back your own desires and rejecting your own needs. It requires a constant negotiation of what you can say and do in the world, constantly diminishing yourself because the effect it might have on other people which, by the way, you cannot possibly control or predict. Think honestly, really, for a moment, how much time you have spent in your life replaying conversations you have had, where you worried you said the wrong thing, how you were maybe too short with that person in the checkout line, or too forward with that dude you met on Tinder, how maybe you shouldn't have cut off that woman in line at the grocery store. How maybe you speak too much in meetings, or make your views too known? How much time have you wasted fretting about whether or not other people like you? Do you think that those same people spend that same time fretting over you? Just do a quick calculation. How much of your life do you think? Hours? Days? A week? Maybe entire years? What masterpieces could you have made by now if you directed your energy toward telling the truth instead? I think perhaps one reason, maybe the primary reason, that the world tries so hard to pressure us to be likable and to punish us when we aren't, is because they are afraid we will realize that if we don't need anyone to like us, we can be any way we want. We can tell any story. We can tell the truth. We can be wrong sometimes. We can make mistakes, sometimes really big ones. We can be crude and vulgar. We can change our minds. We can say something wrong, or better yet, we can say something that is unpopular but right. I want to give a shout out to Randa Girard for that. We can admit that we have sometimes loved the wrong person or gave away too much of ourselves in exchange for fame or favor or fortune. We can tell the stories of our addictions, our falls from glory, our kink and our abuse. We can tell the hard truth we learned at rock bottom. And we can admit that is precisely by climbing back from that lowest place that we have drawn power and strength. We can let ourselves be vulnerable enough to admit our most unforgivable errors, to find our way back from the brink of oblivion. And even if no one likes the story we have to tell, there is no story, none at all, that makes any of us unworthy of love. My darlings, I want to tell you this. There is a truth that lives inside you, and no one can give you permission to tell it except yourself. You can tell the whole thing, the full truth, and you deserve to. You deserve to tell the story of your anger and heartbreak and regret, your foolishness and apostasy, and your unquenchable thirst for revenge. You deserve to admit that sometimes you have been a really terrible person, that sometimes you have held back when you needed to give, that sometimes you have taken more than you need. You deserve to name the harm that has been done to you by others, and you have a responsibility to name the harm you have done. What I am asking is that we make space for these stories of our failures, our ugliness, or unlikability and greet them with love when they appear. I'm almost 40 now. God. Just a couple minutes. These days, I still like being alone sometimes, but not always. I like running. I like the feeling of my legs moving and my feet on the ground. I like how working my muscles makes them feel tired and sore. I like learning how to swim. I like setting very small goals and achieving them. I like singing to pop music with my children in the car, especially when it is very loud and very bad. And I like it when my daughter talks back to me, even though it also makes me mad. And I like it that she is so bold and so weird. I hope she stays bold and weird forever. And I like it when a piece of writing comes across my desk that is brave, and vulnerable, enough to tell the hard story that is underneath the easy story people like, that shows me the ugly truth that has been wearing a beautiful mask. I like it when a writer confronts my assumptions and biases, and I realize I have been wrong. I like to change my mind. This is the work that stories do in the world, and stories are how we will change it. I like feeling so ready for your stories to come across my desk. And I will love reading them. Thank you.
0: Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift, home office of me, David Naman. You can find more of Lacey M. Johnson's work at LaceyMJohnson.com. And don't miss our two conversations, one about her memoir, The Other Side, and the other about her essay collection, The Reckonings, Both can be found at tinhouse.com slash podcasts. If you like what you've heard and are interested in supporting the show, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers or at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who tirelessly helped me make the show run as smoothly as it does. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla and Jeremy Cruz in the art department. Yashwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers' Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album Imre Lodbrog, a sapatita me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.